everyone. It's Jem on the Life of Jem Live video podcast, and you're watching Season 2, Episode 12, Writing with Glory. And today, I'm so honored, because I have, a little bit overwhelmed too, to have the amazing Rania Grande on. It's like that David Letterman show, my guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her an introduction. Um, She's the author of so many books, including the most recently published, her magnum opus, A Ballad of Love and Glory, and the book, some of my favorite memoirs, The Distance Between Us, A Place Called Home, The Novels Across 100 Mountains, and Dancing with Butterflies. She edited and curated also the most recently released as well, Anthology, Somewhere We Are Human, Authentic Voices on Migration survival and new beginnings. As a young girl, she crossed the U.S.-Mexico border to join her family in Los Angeles. She's a motivational speaker, a fabulous professor and teacher, a fellow Macondista, and her latest book, A Ballad of Love and Glory, is a gorgeous sweeping narrative piece of historical fiction that details the war between the United States and Mexico focused on Texas and the Rio Grande. It has so much to say about where we are and how we got here and where we are now. And it's also a beautiful romance and we're gonna talk about it. So let me bring her in. Welcome. Hi, it's so great to be here with you today. Thank you, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Before we get into the meat of the interview, I'd love you to read an excerpt, do you mind? No, not at all. Okay, I'm gonna put it all on you then. Okay, so this excerpt takes place in part two of the novel, and it's from the point of view of my male protagonist, John Riley, who is an immigrant from Ireland. And when he immigrated to the United States, he left his wife and son back in Ireland. And here in, um, during the novel, of course, he ends up falling in love with a Mexican army nurse named Jimena. He avoided Jimena for the next few days. He didn't have courage enough to see her, so he gave up his quarters in the private residences where the officers were lodging and stayed in the citadel with the other gunners. Using his canteen as a pillow, he lay stretched beside the cannons, rolled in a coarse, multicolored Mexican blanket damp from midnight dew. The night was keen and he shivered as he looked at the sky above, trying to find answers written in the heavens. He wrote letters to Nelly by the feeble glimmer of a tin lantern, but tore them up and let the pieces flutter in the wind. What could he tell her that wouldn't be a lie? That he missed her? That he longed for her? Even as he wrote down those very words, His eyes kept drifting to the steeple of the cathedral in the distance, knowing Jimena was in the hospital nearby. It took every ounce of willpower to not climb down the citadel and ride his horse the half mile into the city, down the cobblestones that would lead to her. No, he couldn't write to his wife and tell her half-truths. What manner of man had he become? one who betrayed his soul and suffered his wife to hold on to false promises? He couldn't be that manner of man. Forgive me, Nellie, he said, as he tore up yet another letter and watched the pieces roll away in the wind toward the peaks of the dark stone mountains scratching at the sky. He looked at the moon and fancied himself in Clifton, walking through a dark, misty field upon a solitary lane. His cottage stood against a slope at the bottom of the glen, and guided by the stars glowing above him, he traversed the land of his youth, jumping across a stream whose silvery waters disappeared into the depths of the winding valley and the rolling hills beyond. And just as the sleepy cottage came into view, he paused to look at it, the stone wall softened in the moonlight, splendid in the quietude of the night. He continued down the slope until he found himself standing before the door. Placing his hand against it, he hesitated, too much of a coward to open it just yet. He fancied Nellie sleeping inside, 
Johnny on his cot by the hearth, the turf fire popping. What would Riley say to them? What would they say to him? He opened his eyes and fixed his gaze upon the pale Mexican moon being swallowed up by a mass of rain clouds thickening above him. He couldn't allow himself to fancy his first reunion with his family. It all depended on what manner of man he was by then, an accomplished man or a broken one. Okay, thank you so much. Amazing. Why did you decide to read that section? It's so beautiful, by the way. Oh, thank you. So when I wrote John Riley, one of my inspirations for his character was my father. Because I found a lot of similarities with John and my father in that they were both immigrant men who left their families behind in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. And they came to the U.S. to look for a better life. My father came from Mexico. John Riley came from Ireland. And my father left his wife and his children behind. So as I was writing uh, John Riley's experience as an immigrant and as a father, as a husband, I thought a lot about my dad and what he must have gone through. So whenever I would write about John Riley's nostalgia for his homeland, missing his wife, um, missing his family, having fantasies of going back home and what it would be like once he went back home, I would think about my dad. The other thing that he had in common with my father was that my father also fell in love with a nurse. Really? And he, I imagine as I was writing John Riley's story, I imagine my father's inner turmoil, his yeah. guilt uh, at, you know, having a wife back home and yet here mm -hmm. he is in the U.S. falling in love with another woman. Of course, John Riley is a much better man than my father because he tried to honor his marriage vows and my father did not. You know, I didn't pick up on that when I was reading it, but it's so profound because the character of John Riley is very tortured by this, um, the whole book. And he's always thinking of his family back in Ireland and Galway, I believe it is, and the mm -hmm. potato famine that's going on and how and she's trying to get as much money as he can to send his remittance home. And when when I was thinking of the term remittance, I was thinking of Mexico in a way. So it's so interesting that connection you found. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, when I started writing the novel, I, I did not say, oh, I'm going to write yeah. about my dad through John Riley. It just happened very organically. It sounds like it. And what's interesting about that is the historical aspect. Is John Riley based on a certain character from history? Or did you start researching the history of, and we'll talk about this, these Irishmen that fought on the Mexico side that deserted the U.S. Army, swam the Rio Grande, and came over and formed an Irish battalion. Mm -hmm. How did you find about, out about that? Because I know I love Irish history, too, because I'm obsessed with James Joyce and other Irish writers. And so I've done a lot of research, but I did not know that about Irish history. Yeah, so the idea for writing this novel was born out of me finding out about John Riley and the St. Patrick's Battalion. So he was a real historical okay. figure and his story, we don't know a whole lot about his backstory in Ireland because parish records were burned in a fire, but we know that he came from Clifton from County Galway. He immigrated here to North America trying to find a better life. And he ended up in the U.S. Army as a private in, um, in the infantry. And he, on April 12, 1846, he threw himself into the Rio Grande, swam south, and he switched sides and joined the Mexican army. So after I love that, that scene where he jumps in by the yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. So then he ended up becoming the leader of the St. Patrick's Battalion, which is a unit in the Mexican army 
composed of other deserters just like him from the U.S. Army. So when I found out about John Riley and the St. Patrick's Battalion, I was just really fascinated about the story. And I immediately started asking why, you know, why did he do it? Yeah. What led him to risk his life deserting because desertion was punishable by death? Um, why did he want to help Mexico defend itself against the U.S. invaders? What kept him in the war, even though he realized he was on the losing side? Like, why did he keep fighting for Mexico? So, I, I, so all these- I mean, they're so under militarized. It's yeah. almost comical at some point. You're like, what is going on? Get some guns yeah. and artillery. But, I, you know, it just wasn't going to happen, you know? Right. So that's that's um, that's how I came to write this novel about this Irish immigrant. And of course, it was it was kind of difficult because I'm not Irish and I'm not uh, Irish. I'm an Irish man from the 19th century. So writing this book was quite a departure for me, you know, in terms of, of my work and what I'm used to doing. I definitely stepped out of my comfort zone to write this story. But I, I really wanted to learn more about the Mexican-American War. And I didn't know much about it. So then I thought, if I write a novel, I'll teach myself. And I read, I read almost a hundred books. I read a ton of history books and diaries and letters and, you know, all these, all these different, um, all this material to teach myself about this time period, about the U.S. invasion, about the politics during this time, and then researching the historical figures that I write about too. Yeah, and you, you do a beautiful job of it. The dialogue from John Riley, the the little phrases like "last," it all sounds very authentic and real to me. Um, but you talked about figuring out why John Riley uh, left the United States Army and deserted them and fought for the Mexican troops. You know, is it Catholicism? Is it the um, elitism of the Protestants that won't even allow them to drink or practice their religion or do anything? that they were used to doing? What was it? Was it a combination, money, land? Yeah. Well, I think it, it was a, a combination of different factors. But for sure, I mean, the, the things that I explore in the book is how um, there was a lot of discrimination against the Irish mm-hmm. and other foreign soldiers, like the Germans, the Italians, the Poles, uh, the Scots they were discriminated against and especially for their religion. You know, they were yeah. Catholic and there was a, a lot of religious rancor in the U.S. Army. So they were severely punished all the time for just the, the most minor offenses. They would severe harsh punishments. And I then, mean, torture them in a way, yeah. right? Oh, and yeah. It was abuse torture. them, maim them. Yeah. So there's all these nativist officers in the U.S. Army who inflicted a lot of um, a lot of pain and, and mistreatment yeah. on these foreign soldiers. And then, of course, um, they're about to go to war with Mexico, which is a Catholic nation. And some of them just didn't feel right, you know, betraying their own Catholic faith by attacking a Catholic nation. And they started deserting. And uh, John Riley, at least my interpretation of John Riley, he ends up deserting because um, he no longer believes in in his oath to the U.S. Army. He, you know, he wants to uh, defend Mexico because he sees Mexico becoming an I- another Ireland. You know, a right. that's going to be oppressed by an Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation. And he has experienced firsthand what it's like for your country to be invaded, for your lands to be taken and to be turned into a landless peasant. So he he feels um, more um, of a loyalty towards Mexico than he does the United States. 
And he really is a man of integrity because even abandoning that oath in the book, you make it very clear that it's something that he's struggling with, but that ultimately he goes with his conscience and that he goes with his gut and he swims that river and then later even recruits other Irishmen, right? And becomes Mm -hmm. basically the lieutenant of the St. Patrick's Battalion. Yeah, yeah. He becomes their commander and he is actively recruiting you yeah. know, he, he's recruiting. Um, I think, I mean, this is this is real, right? Like this yeah. is real history. The St. Patrick's Battalion is a real unit in the Mexican army that was created by Santa Ana and, and John Riley was its leader. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, in Mexico, the Irish soldiers are seen as the heroes, and to this day, they're still honored. Oh, if wow. you go to, to Mexico City, there's a plaza there that has a bust of John Riley. There's a plaque listing all the names of the San Patricios that were hanged at the gallows. And then there's a parade in their honor, whereas here in the United States, um, the U.S. Army tried to erase them from the records. You know, the U.S. government yeah. denied the existence of the St. Patrick's Battalion for a long time. And when they were mentioned, they were mentioned as he- as traitors, whereas in Mexico, they're heroes. Right. So it's just about your perspective and the angle you're looking at it. And, you know, we talked, um, you talk in your afterward about how we're not, we were never taught a lot of this history and how it might have changed your perception of yourself coming over to the United States if you had known that, you know, Spanish was the native tongue. This mm-hmm. used to be Mexico in California, right? I mean, how yeah. do you feel about that when you were writing it? Was that like percolating in your head the whole time? And I also find it fascinating, all the intersections that you just mentioned between Ireland and Mexico. I, I, I really, I mean, and how people are treated and then later on how Mexicans are treated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I appreciate from writing the novel was how it empowered me and it helped me to reframe the way I see myself as a Mexican living in California. Because when I was younger, I I believed the, you know, the society that told me I was a foreigner in California that I was an outsider living here. And then this society also made me feel ashamed about being a Spanish speaker. And so I had internalized all of all of this. Um, when I was researching the novel and learning all this history and and realizing how California used to be a part of Mexico and Spanish was spoken here first before English. I started to look at the way I saw myself and and I started to understand that I am not the foreigner that I was made to believe and that I shouldn't be ashamed about being a Spanish speaker. I'm getting choked up because, you know, my mom didn't teach me my sister Spanish and it always feels like a huge loss to me. But she basically had the Spanish slapped out of her in elementary school. Right. She was the one brown face in a sea of white in Orange County and her uh, relatively affluent, she had an affluent upbringing and then they lost everything. But I think, um, yeah, it makes me kind of angry that we were fed this narrative that English mm-hmm. is this language when this is was Mexico. Right. And right. we, you know, <laughs> you're the native speaker. You know, my mom's the native speaker. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's really interesting. It, it just, I, and I never thought of, because all your other books, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, the immigration aspect was just, you know, it's overt. And that's why I love them. But this one, there's so many layers to this fiction. This It's a historical fiction, but it's based on fact, right? Mm-hmm. And so where, how did you play with the facts? Were you able to do that? Or did you feel like you had to like research everything? Because it's just so beautifully written. And I want to get to the romance because I'm yeah. a romantic at heart. But how do you find Jimena? Where does she yeah. come from? She's a so, healer, a psychic. Yeah, that, well, that, that was the fun part in the book. Because mm-hmm. obviously the real stuff 
is John Riley. You mm -hmm. know, he's a real person. And I took a few liberties with his character because we don't know that he had a wife. You know, that's not in the record. I gave him a wife because I was basing him on my father and, and, and so many other male immigrants yeah. who have come here, they have left their wives behind. So I gave him a wife, but um, everything else about him, you know, like when he enlisted in the army, when he deserted, when he joined the Mexicans, him going up in rank, becoming a leader of the St. Patrick's Battalion, and then the brutality that he experienced after um, when, when they were captured, all of that is true. So I try to really um, honor the events that happened and also the historical timeline. I didn't take any liberties with the timeline. I try to follow it the way the events unfolded. The, the fiction comes in in Jimena because Jimena is a fictional character. And um, she was inspired by a poem written by John Greenleaf Whittier called The Angels of Buena Vista. And the poem is about this Mexican woman named Jimena who's out in the battlefield tending to the wounded. And when I came upon this poem, I was very shocked because it's a very pro-Mexican poem written by this white guy, right? John Greenleaf Whittier. I was also living in the city of Whittier when I found the poem. So that was extra special. And then I was also fascinated that his character was named Jimena because it's not a very common name. And I thought it was a beautiful name. And in his poem, he's honoring the Mexican soldaderas who were part of the, the war effort. And the, the figure of the soldadera is very iconic during the Mexican Revolution because by then we had cameras that were documenting mm -hmm. their participation. So there's all these photographs of these female soldiers with their rifles and their cartridge belts and, you know, looking really tough. But we have had soldaderas in old wars that Mexico participated in. And you know, during the Mexican-American War, obviously there's no photo documentation, but there were a lot of soldaderas during that time too. So then I made Jimena a soldadera. And because of that poem that I found. Well, I, and I just love her character. You know, she start. I'm not giving really anything away. She starts out married, ends up a widow, and then she meets John Riley. And there's this instant attraction between them. Clearly to me, they're soulmates. It's like they're destined to meet. And she's also a little bit psychic, right? Where did you get that from? Like that, not, it's not magical realism, but there's, there's this mm -hmm. aspect to her where she's, um, knowing mm -hmm. and she's a healer and she believes yeah. in vision and it's more I think mystical right it's more spiritual yeah her grandmother is an indigenous folk healer who mm -hmm. trained Jimena in the healing arts and it's documented you know that the healers sometimes also have the ability to to see the future right mm -hmm. um and so for Jimena when she almost dies of cholera when she's 12 and her grandmother saves her, after that, um, she receives the gift of sight. And so sometimes she has dreams where she can see what's going to happen. And she's afraid of her dreams. You know, she's, she's, she's terrified of her dreams and what, what uh, visions they bring. And I try to bring that into into the novel as a way for her to to be able to foresee what's coming. And I love that part of it. As someone who both believes in that and tarot cards and all of that and spirituality and mysticism, and, and I'm also Catholic, I, I reconcile the two. And um, I really appreciated that. It gave her a depth of character. And it, like you said, it allowed you to foreshadow these things that were it, are kind of ominous. And so we're a little bit in suspense as the reader. We don't know if the vision is going to come true or not. But real quick, we have one question from the writer, author of Agave Blues. I love Ruthie. So fascinating novel. How long was the research? I love how you challenge yourself to be about some to learn about something foreign to you. Yeah, so the research 
took me a long time. I spent about seven years on and off working on the novel. Um, I took a, a break, a lot of breaks, <laughs> because sometimes the research would get very overwhelming to me. And I felt that I had taken on more than I could handle. And so I would put it away and switch to writing something else. Like I wrote, um, I, I, I did the young readers version of The Distance Between Us and I did A Dream Called Home during the time that I was writing the novel because I would switch to what was easier for me, which was memoir. And then I'll go back to the novel when I was ready to tackle more research so it was an overwhelming project, but there came a point when it started getting easier. Once I knew, I once I had figured out my plot and how it fit into the historical timeline, once I had figured out my characters and what they wanted, um, things got easier. Because for me, the, the, the first few drafts are always the most difficult. And then revising the later drafts, that's when I really start to enjoy the process. Oh, great question. Thank you, Ruthie. Yeah. And, you know, people don't, I think, always think about, you know, they think, oh, you read my memoir took me 15 years. This book took you seven years of research while you're working on all these other things. And um, I, you could definitely see the craft in it. And I know you plot out all your novels and you're organized, but, you know, how do you get to that place? Is, is it somewhat channeling sometimes, even with fiction? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, really understanding the characters. And the easiest character for me to write was John Riley, uh -huh. which is interesting because Jimena is a Mexican woman, and yet she gave me the most trouble. I couldn't, I didn't know who she was. I had to create her whole backstory and understand mm -hmm. how she was part of the, the war and how she ended up in the battlefield. And I, I had a hard time capturing her voice and, and um, getting into her head. Whereas with John Riley from the very beginning, I started writing his scenes and they were just coming to me so easily. You know, I could see him in in his tent. I could see him in in the wow. campground. I can see him interacting with the other um, Irish soldiers. I could hear him in my head. Whereas with Jimena, for a long time, I struggled with her chapters to the mm -hmm. point where I was leaving them blank. Every time I knew that there was going to be a Jimena chapter, I would just leave it blank because I had no idea what mm -hmm. to write. And then I'll just keep going with John Riley. So it took me a while. Um, it wasn't until she meets Santa Ana that I really started to get a, a handle on, on who she mm -hmm. was and to hear her voice. And her interactions with Santana were my favorite chapters to write with her because Santa Ana, he... He was also another easy character for me, which surprised me because I thought he was going to be the hardest one to write because he's such a, you know, he's such a huge historical figure, bigger than life personality. And he's so controversial, too, in history. I thought he was going to be really hard to write, but he was my easiest character. And whenever I put him in the same room with Jimena, there was so much tension there between the two of them that he he helped me figure out who Jimena was. Yeah, and, and their scenes are actually some of my favorites too because you do really get this visceral sense of the powerfulness of Jimena and how she can stand up to him, how she sees him. And John Riley does not see Santa Ana for who he is at first, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that who... For me, Santa Ana, what does he represent in the story other than the historical figure? Is it the corruption, the the misogyny? I mean, he, the way he looks at Jimena drove me crazy. I'm like, ooh, just sock him. And at one point she does, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Santa Ana, he had... He had such a big influence on in Mexico, right, in the 19th century. And to me, it was so important to write about him 
So I, when I was when I was figuring out the story, I didn't want to just have him from afar and yeah. keep my characters away from him and just kind of say, oh, there's Santana, the commander, but never include him in the story. I almost feel that he he is a, a very central figure yeah. in the novel. And I the reader gets to really understand the complexities of Mexican history in the 19th century through Santa Ana. And you get to see- He's a contradiction. There's yeah. times where he cries and you feel bad for him. I mean, I really didn't expect that stuff from about him. I thought he was at first going to be a villain, but he's not. Yeah. Well, that's why I like writing him because I didn't want to turn him into a villain. Um, mm -hmm. Not like a, a one-dimensional villain that you usually see him portrayed as. Like in the horrible movie, The Alamo. Right. Um, he's always portrayed as this one dimensional villain. And in the novel, I wanted to give him his complexity because he was a very complex man. Yeah. And and I found it more interesting to really illustrate his flaws and his failings, but at the same time also get you to to like him, you know, yeah. like you can't help but like the guy too, because he's so charismatic. And um, so there's a lot of contradictions to Santa Ana that I try to highlight in the novel. Yeah, and that image of the stump and Jimena like massaging. I mean, it's just so, there's so many layers there that when I reread it, I really saw it more. And I did see him as a central figure. Going to like issues of violence and the the war scenes um i think i would find a really hard find it really hard to write that kind of stuff some of the images you put in the book are just um horrible there's a pile of amputated limbs it's kind of like i felt like it was almost like the civil war kind of images people are being maimed they're being severely burned they're dying on the battlefield by tons on both sides and um the maiming and the dismemberment is very extreme. How hard was that to write? Not that hard. Um, that's where my mind was. Mm. And I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad that you liked it because I know that I have heard from other women who were very bothered by it and, and that they struggled to read some of the descriptions of the carnage and the brutality of the battles. But, you know, because of the pandemic, my mind was in a very dark place. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing these battle scenes, I, I couldn't shy away from not writing about the brutality mm -hmm. and about the carnage, right? You have to. And, and I, I wanted to really capture what my characters went through because they're on the front lines of the war. So they get to see it firsthand, everything. And I've been thinking about like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have seen it on our televisions, on our phone screens, what an invasion looks like. And that's what I try to portray in my novel. But I know that, um, some readers would have a hard time with the very vivid descriptions of, of the, the battles and all the blood and all the gore. But that's what, yeah. that's what an invasion looks like. Exactly. And I felt it was so cinematic. And, it, and the way it moved had such an energy in those battle scenes. And that's why I wondered if it was hard to get, get that pace and capture it. But you do, I mean... It's like people can watch Game of Thrones and they might complain about some of the violence, but that time was real. And like this, how else are you going to show a war without it? I mean, uh, you know, maybe some women might not have written those parts so um, authentically, but I think the book is much better for it. Um, Ruthie said, um, love the vivid descriptions. Mm -hmm. Yes, cinematic. And maybe this will be made into a movie. <laughs> that would be awesome. It reminded me of Saving Private Ryan in that bit, way, which I'm not a necessarily a war movie person, but there are some uh, war movies like Platoon and Saving Private Ryan that really, and Apocalypse Now, that really spoke to me because of the characters and then the violence together and how it shows the contrast of that. 
So I think your book did a really good job of that. Um, class, class and elitism and roles in society. Um, that's where I think we get into a deep read of this book and why it should be taught in schools is because there's really a layer there and you link the Irish and the Mexican experience. And John Riley um, actually even acknowledges in the book some of the privileges he's afforded by virtue of his color in Mexico. And he is very discriminated against when he's on the US side. He is basically knows he can never go up in rank He'll never be given any kind of, you know, accolades. So he would have never rose the way he did if he had stayed on the United States side. And then the men who desert. But was one of your goals was to show this complicated nature of race, class, um, color, mm -hmm. religion, conflict, and how they work together? I mean, I've never read a book that dealt with all those issues in one space. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that was actually very surprising to me, too, because as I was doing the research, I started to get a very deep understanding of how society worked at this time, both in the U.S. and Mexico, and the politics at the time. Um, I wanted to bring all of that into the story, you know, where especially John Riley comments a lot, right, on his white privilege, because in the U.S., he was not seen as white. And that's why he suffered so much ethnic and religious abuse and discrimination. But when he went to Mexico, he was seen as white. And at the time, and still today, you could argue, Mexico's a, it's a, it's a, Mexico values light skin you know whiteness mm -hmm. and you could yeah. see it in the all the mexican telenovelas the actors are the newscasters white they're always light skin blue eyes blonde hair you know you could see it even to this day so mexican society in the 19th century embraced john riley because he was white and so he's constantly observing that and then there's a passage in the book where he says nobody who looked at him would realize that he had more in common with the Mexican landless mm. peasant than with the higher born. So like he knows that. And then Jimena, of course, you know, she's also um, constantly noticing that discrimination, right? Especially in the Mexican army, the bulk of the Mexican army were, were, Native Americans, um, Indios, right, who were forced into service and they were barefoot, they they were not properly clothed, they didn't have weapons, you know, they had machetes and slingshots. And the you the 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 Mexican commanders would abuse them and, and just see them as disposable. So Jimena was also noticing what was going on in, in Mexico at the time. So I try to bring in all of that, you know, the classes, um, which even to this day also continues in, in Mexico. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I mean by layers and layers and layers. And like I said, the first time I read it, I wanted to get through it. Cause I was like to get through the writers I have on their book at least once. But then when I reread it, I really saw the layers and I took my time with it. And I probably read the uh, romance scenes over at least three times. Um, <laughs> so my twin sisters here, Jackie. Hi, Jackie. She's a teacher. Um, she teaches mm -hmm. um, at a continuation school in Palm Springs, uh, Cathedral City. And she said, I would love to see teach this to students in high school and her students are primarily people of color and I've went to her school and these students are just aching for books like this where they can see themselves or their ancestors reflected right and mm -hmm. then Victoria Waddle who's a librarian at uh, Rancho Cucamonga she said she needs to grab this book I'm writing an Irish and Mexican mythological mix in a novel ah, great. <laughs> <laughs> and and victoria waddle also has a, a blog about books uh called uh library put the link in there victoria and then um adriana chavetta who's a, a high school journalism teacher says 
since the main character of the book was inspired or modeled after your dad, do you think you'll write a book based on your mom? Mm. Huh. Well, I I don't know in fiction, but at least in my memoirs, I have written about my mother and I've written several essays about my mom too. So I, I do write a lot about her. Yeah, and going back to the dad character, you know, in, in all in all of your memoirs, your dad is such a central character and he's always looking for his home, right? For land, for a house. And, and that's why when you talk about John Riley being based on your father, it's so profound because I, you know, I hear my father's voice more than anything. And I just wonder if John Riley and your father, and, you know, John Riley or your father, they're talking to you, you, you know? It's, it's just really interesting how this book came to be and how John Riley was the easiest character and the character you heard the most, right? It's just interesting. So, how, we, we know at the end of the book, I'm not going to give the romance stuff away, but let's talk about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which I, I, I read those sections over and over because it is a history lesson, everyone. I think this also, oh, uh, Victoria Waddle's, uh, website is schoollibrary.com. She does really good reviews. I'm sure she'll review your book eventually. I love her reviews. And um, they end Mexico, which I did not know they lost this much territory. They lose Cal California, most of Arizona and uh, New Mexico, and then Colorado. I mean, well, more Las yeah, Vegas. More. Yeah, Las Vegas. Part of Utah. Wow. Part of Wyoming. And um, yeah, I mean, I included. I didn't know Wyoming. Just a little part. I, yeah. I included um, a map in the novel see, that shows you Mexico before and after the war. Oh wow! Um, so you can really get a visual. I mean, Mexico used to go up to Oregon, the Oregon border, you know, and. Um, it, it really shows you how much land was taken from Mexico. Yeah. And, and I put it at the end of the book because I feel that it was um, such a strong image, right? And it really helps you to understand what Mexico lost during this war. Yes. And they lost a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot both, um, you know, land-wise and in other ways. Um, so in the end, how, why did you decide to put the love story in? <laughs> um, I mean, that's my favorite part, too. So. Yeah, oh, I'm glad. Uh, well, because when I was researching John Riley, I came upon a, uh, a rumor that he had fallen in love with the Mexican oh. widow. And people, some people thought that John Riley had stayed in Mexico to make a life there with this Mexican widow. So when I found Jimena in John, um, John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, I started thinking about her being this Mexican widow that steals John Riley's heart. <laughs> and that's where the love story came in. Oh, it's so beautiful. Um, do you mind reading on page 156? Um, it's the one, two, three, four, like she laughed and came willingly to his arms paragraph. I mean, it's just so beautifully done. Um, is this uh, oh, the Fandango? Uh -huh, yeah. Because what I loved about the romance is they don't just jump into it. You really build this up. They become friends. They're hanging out a lot. Um, they're going places together in Mexico. And um, and then it just culminates. And the building up of the romance and then the culmination of it is what, I mean, it killed me. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to let you read that part. Okay. Really you don't All right, it. I'll start from earlier. After Mass a fandango was held in the main plaza. 
Gleams of moonlight shone through the palm trees and torches and lights illuminated the world of figures spinning to the fiddles and guitars. Riley pushed through the throng until he finally spotted his men dancing away with the local women. He saw Maloney trolling Jimena round and round, his cheeks flushed and his eyes bright with glee. Riley smiled at the delightful scene. He had never seen Maloney this happy. He had a light heel and so did Jimena, dancing with the same indefatigable vigor she did everything else. Listening to the sounds of jollity, Riley knew this night was a gift to be treasured. The following day, they would go back to fretting about the war, but at least for this one moment, the music and laughter were a gentle shower washing away their worries of the coming strife. A lively waltz began and Maloney spotted Riley and waved him over. There you are, lad. Come and take my place. These old bones can keep up with my lovely partner. Off with ye and enjoy the music. Riley hesitated before he took Jimena in his arms and guilt soon pricked him. Nelly loved to dance. He was as grateful, graceful as a sheep dancing on its hind legs but she had always managed to pull him out to dance whenever there was a bagpipe or fiddle present. Jimena noticed his hesitation and smiled in understanding. We go sit? She turned to walk away from the dance floor to the, to the bench where Maloney waited. Riley grabbed her elbow and said, I'm not very good at this, but I'd like to try for a bit if you don't mind me stepping on you. She laughed and came willingly into his arms. She didn't make a fuss when he trod on her tiny feet or when they collided against other couples. He was too nervous to concentrate, whereas she was graceful and swaying like a nocturnal desert flower unfurling in the sultry night. He could feel the warmth of her body, see the delicate curve of her neck, the valley between her breasts peeking through the lace-trimmed ruffles of her white blouse, the torchlight casting a silver glow on her black plaited hair. He became warm and flushed as if he'd eaten a handful of Pekin peppers. And as she looked at him with her lovely honeyed eyes, the burning glow spread through his body from the inside out. Forgive me, Nellie, he thought. He tried to recall what his wife looked like. And for a moment, just a brief moment, all he could see were the cold, thrilling mist that had enveloped her that cheerless morning. He walked away. He let go of Jimena so quickly, she nearly lost her balance. Okay, I'll stop there. So beautiful. So beautiful. Like I say, that buildup, and he's a little tortured, you know, with, you know, he's trying to keep his vow to his family. And uh, yeah, just beautiful, beautiful. I know people could see the build up there. So I'm going to switch gears really quick because I did want you to talk about this anthology you curate, curated and um, edited along with uh, Sonia Guignansaka. Yeah. And um, I, I know some of the writers in here and it's a very well curated uh collection including Lucy Rodriguez Hamley who's a Macondista and others I'm sure and so how did this come to be and for those of uh, those of you who want to know where to get it it's called Somewhere We Are Human Authentic Voices on Migration Survival and New Beginnings. Yeah so this anthology I worked on it while I was taking breaks from the novel um, every time I turn in a draft of the novel to my editor, I'll switch gears <laughs> and work on the anthology. And it was kind of nice to be able to do these two projects at the same time, because obviously the novel required a different part of my brain, a, you know, tapping into different kind of creativity. Whereas with the anthology, because I was editing, um, it was different. It was a different process and it was me helping the contributors um, re revise their work and bring it to the next level. Wow. So what's special about this anthology is that it's created entirely by undocumented or formerly undocumented immigrants. So 
myself and my co-editor, Sonia Guignansaka, we were previously undocumented. Many of our contributors are still undocumented. Some of them um, are DACA recipients. Some of them um, also were deported or, or self-deported. Um, and we write about that experience of being undocumented in the United States. And everybody has a different story to share. So there's a lot of common threads, common themes with each piece. And the way that they're in conversation with one another, it's really interesting. But even though like there's a common there's there's a common story and a universality to the immigrant experience, but each voice is singular and unique. And you can really like get that as you're reading each story, you can see like how each person has their own unique voice and their own unique experience in in the United States. Right. And the fact that you're using your power and your voice to raise up other voices, especially those of people who are undocumented or formerly undocumented, I think it's so important because, you know, as a public defender, we're now moving towards a holistic defense strategy where we're taking immigration more into account and uh, whether someone could be deported as a result of any plea. And I just, I mean, this speaks to so much. This is this, your book. A Ballad of Love and Glory and Showing Those Intersections. And then this book together should just be a required reading list, right? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> and I just want to put some more comments. Ruthie said, such a lovely and lyrical description. Cindy, Cindy Nessinger, who's a local Riverside writer, she wrote a children's book about a mouse at the Mission Inn. She said, brava. Uh, bravo. And then Lucy's here, who's one oh, of our Oh, Lucy's one of our contributors. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so she's watching. Yeah. So uh, we got about um, 10 minutes. So I just wanted you, because we have a lot of female writers here, a lot of female writers of color. What tips do you have in the age of when, you know, some publishers are still publishing books like American Dirt? What tips do you have for writers trying, uh, Latina writers especially, trying to break into this business when they want to make everyone a monolith, right? And like, I don't fit that narrative. A lot of people don't fit the narrative of what a Latina writer is, mm -hmm. what our stories are like. And I love the spectrum of it. And like you said about this anthology, like there's intersections and there's connections and threads, but everyone's voice is singular. I love that statement everyone's voice is singular we're all different and we all have our own story what tips do you have for people watching yeah well I mean I I, I really I'm pushing for the publishing business to acknowledge that right that mm -hmm. we all have our own unique voice and that no we're not gonna be writing the same stories um, we might write the same themes, you know, yeah. and some similar experiences, but I, I think everybody has a, 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 a unique perspective and a unique way of seeing the world. So I think that that's really important in, especially, you know, for young writers to understand that and to not get discouraged because everybody is writing and, and you might see like similar stories that come out, but nobody can write it the way you can. Nobody can tell us, uh, you know, write about certain experiences the way you will write about them because you bring in your own uniqueness to it. So keep writing and, and, and keep pushing yourself, you know, to create these stories that deserve to be told and that, that need to be told and that need to be read. Definitely. That's so important. Thank you for saying that. Because, you know, if I had had your book, A Ballad of Love and Glory, when I was um, right out of, I dropped out of high school, then I went to, got my GD, went to junior college in my first creative writing class. I had a white professor tell me, you're too dramatic. You're melodramatic. I mean, I grew up reading romances. What do you want from me? And I just, I didn't write for about 10 years. Wow. I was told that too in college. But I mean, I grew up watching telenovelas. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, my writing was. And look what you wrote now. One of the most historical 
This no. is, you know what? What I would love to see this book turn into a telenovela, a historical telenovela uh, produced by like Televisa or something, you know, a, a big uh, Mexican uh, production company. Because there are there are several historical telenovelas. Um, some mm. of them are set during the Mexican War of Independence. Some of them are about the revolution or El Porfiriato. But we haven't had a telenovela set during this time of the Mexican-American War. So, Yeah, and, and the book could really be episodic. I could see that because my favorite thing about um, TV nowadays, I watch a lot of TV, is... Um, the episodes, right? Mm -hmm. I, I love either binging them. I hate waiting for stuff, so I wait. But like the way TV and film is now or streaming, I, I could see this as different episodes. They could break it up, you know? And it yeah. would be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so um, you're so humble. I mean, you really give hope for all of us, you know, toiling out there, writers, uh, you know, and you're just so approachable. So what's next on, the, I mean, you are so successful. Oh, really quick, though, I did have a question. You did convert The Distance Between Us into an adaptation where you adapted it um, from an adult book into a, a like a YA or a younger. Middle, middle grade. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? Was that difficult? Did you have to cut stuff? Did you write it over? I just I'm adapting my young adult memoir into a play. And I think adaptation is one of the hardest things to do. Uh, well, yeah, I think for a play, I would see that it would be very hard. Um, my my adaptation wasn't so difficult because mm. the distance between us already had a a, a child's voice, yeah, and and uh, the point of view was there already, yeah. So the challenge was to trim it down, you know, trim okay. it down because it was very long, too long for a middle grade book. And then also um, simplify some of the language and and shorten the sentences a little bit, and then take out take out some stuff that was not appropriate for that age group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right though. I mean, I could see where you're just kind of trimming and you're modifying and editing. You know, taking out maybe expletives if there are any and stuff yeah. like that because that's a big deal for middle grade. Um, mm -hmm. I just wanted to show some more comments. Cindy Nessinger, thank you, Rangya, for the validation and encouragement. And then we have Frances Vasquez here, who's a Riverside. Uh, just she's a touchstone in our Inland Empire community. She works a lot with the Cheech. And she said, wonderful conversation. Um, uh, Viva los San Patricio. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure you've read her book and it's just amazing. So tell us what's next on the horizon for you and where people can go to find you, any upcoming events you have. I know you have an L.A. event coming up if you want to talk briefly about that. Well, I have a lot of events coming up this fall. And you could go to reinagrande.com to see my list because I do have a ton. I'm going to be going, I mean, I'm going to be going to L.A., to San Diego, to um, Chicago, D.C., to all kinds of places. So do check out my events list. Uh, I The Spanish version of A Ballad of Love and Glory is coming out in October. So I'm going to have my book launch in L.A. on October 2nd at uh, La Plaza de Cultura y Artes. Um, so I'm really excited about that because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it together with Maria Amparo Escandón because her novel comes out in Spanish the same day as mine. So we're going to team up and have a joint book launch. So that's going to be really exciting. Oh, that's amazing. And I can't wait to buy the Spanish version of this for my suegra, who is Argentino, and she loves her romance, and she loves her some history. So I'm going to definitely get the Spanish version of that. So everyone, go to the website, check out all her work, buy all her books. I also want to give a shout out to, I guess, the sequel to Distance Between Us, which is one of my favorite books about your college experience, um, a, a place a called, called A Dream called, called Home. Uh, I love that book. I, I, I think it's because so few people write about like 
college from a perspective yeah. of someone who doesn't have family members that have gone to college mm -hmm. or kind of figuring yeah, it out. Yeah, first-gen first experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So everyone get that book too. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for coming on. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all the questions. And I, I'm I'm just so happy about how much you enjoy reading the novel and how you were able to see and appreciate all the layers that I put in there. So yeah. it just <laughs> it, it makes me seven years uh, so rewarding, and you know, knowing that that you yeah. you appreciated all the work that I put into this book. And I know everyone will too. I mean, I books saved my life. Um, if I was a little girl reading this, I, I would have been reading it at the park by a flashlight, and I would have just fell into it. And my favorite books are books that I fall into where I lose myself. And I really lost myself in it. I mean, I lost my, I forgot where I was. I forgot my dog died. I forgot all the unhappy things and all the, even the good things. I was just reading it. And my husband's like talking to me. I'm like, oh, I can't talk right now. I got to finish this chapter, you know? And so thank you for writing it. I know it took a lot of your hard work and blood that you gave to this because this is I, I'm not being it's a masterpiece it's beautifully done mm -hmm. and I know how much work you must have put into it I mean I can't even imagine because that just the research alone for seven years and then translating it to the page you know so thank you and everyone just a shout out next month we have another Macam Vista on Allison Hedgecoke who's going to read and we're going to talk to her about her new book look at this blue that's on Wednesday, September 21st at 7 p.m. Pacific. Always thank you so much for coming on. Please, everyone, buy these, buy A Ballad of Love and Glory, buy the anthology, and check out her website and go to her events. Bye, everyone. Thank, thank you so you. much. Bye-bye.